All right. Take, take your notebooks if you got them. Turn them over on the back. And I want to just one of the things that we'll do every time we're together is we'll just walk through these build disciplines, the six of them. And remember, um, and we'll just try to refresh our memory with them every time. Building in the church is is all about just calling out servant leaders in the church to unite them around these spiritual biblical disciplines. Um, our desire is that we want the men of the church to be built up and united around these leadership disciplines so that there's a common understanding among the men at Grace Bible Church just what it means to be a man of God. What does it mean to be a leader um, at this church? And um, that's all so that this church can be effective with the gospel. Uh, we love you. We want you to be built up. But we're thinking beyond you because what God is after in this world is beyond me and it's beyond you, but we are a necessary part of it. It's so that the gospel goes forward, that it goes deep into our own church, and so that the gospel goes far beyond our own church. And if the gospel is going to go far beyond our church, it's going to take men being godly men, men who shepherd their hearts with the word of God. And that's what Discipline 1 is all about. Everything flows from Discipline 1. We talked about that last time, didn't we? And we're going to talk about it again today. And we're going to talk about it again October 17th. And then we'll finally move on to Discipline 2. But Discipline 1 is all about shepherding your heart. Um, the man of God is the guy who knows that I need to bring my heart to the Word of God because what my heart mean, needs more than anything is to meet with the God of that Word. My heart needs to be in tight, deep relationship with the God of this Word. And so that is what makes the difference between... Um, the guy who takes his place in the pew at church and a guy who's going to lead people. Um, the guy who's going to lead people and shepherd people is a guy who knows that he needs to do that. He doesn't have to be told to do that. He understands the condition of his own heart and he loves God and he wants his heart to come closer to the God of the Word and to meet with Him. And that is the guy who has something to say to the sheep. Christ purchased and redeemed with his own blood. And that's the guy that God wants to speak, have speak to his sheep and to care for him and to come alongside him and to lift him up. And come on, make sure you grab one of the handouts. And then there's a couple chairs left. We got one right here. Or two right there. Whatever you like. So that's the guy that is going to make a big impact. That's the guy who has something to say. Um, the right things to say. Uh, the guy whose heart is full of God from his word. Okay. Um, next after that is discipline two, the home or the household relationships. Um, that guy, wherever he lives, needs to just give off an aroma of a heart for God, that this man loves God. And when you step into that man's house, his home, and, and see his household relationships, there should be evidence that a man of God lives here. And it doesn't matter if you're married and you got... 20 kids, or if you're a single guy living with a bunch of other single guys, there should be evidence in that household that there is a man of God who lives there. And you can see it in the way that the house is run, at least to the degree that he can have an impact. You can tell by his relationships, the way that he relates to the people in his room. You can ask the people that live with him, what's he like? And they say, he, he loves God. He loves the Lord, and he, he loves God's word because I see him meeting with God, and it makes an impact on my relationship with him. Again, it doesn't matter if it's a roommate. It doesn't matter if it's a wife or a child. Uh, that man needs to make an impact in the household arena. Um, 
And then discipline three is then finally outside of that, among people and in the church, the ministry. This man is now ready and able and equipped and effective to step into people's lives with the gospel of Jesus Christ, wherever he goes. And, and what, is the, what is one of the greatest problems in the local church in regards to men? It is men who are very eager to get to people in the church. I'll lead a study. I'll lead this ministry. I'll do whatever. I, I have a genuine zeal. You guys have genuine zeal to be, to be used. But they play leapfrog over two crucial things. Their own hearts, number one. And number two, the people they live with. And the next thing you know, you've got guys leading studies, but their marriages are falling apart. I mean, I, I'm not making this up. You guys know this. You understand this. This is everywhere. And... Um, what we need to do is come back to square one and say, no, I'm a, I need to be a man who shepherds my heart. That's my responsibility before God. He gave me a new heart that is full of love for him, and I want to feed that new heart with the word of God so that I can get God in my heart more. And I'm going to go and I'm going to impact the people I live with. And in doing so, you develop a life of integrity so that when you step into the lives of other people in the church, they look at you and they don't say, you know, I, I really appreciate the way you care for me, but why are your kids, why, why don't they like to be around you? <coughs> a life of integrity, okay? The fourth discipline is the qualifications for deacon and elder, and primarily for build, we just really want to put deacon qualifications in front of you. Those are in First Timothy 3. Um, and what you'll find in the deacon qualifications and the elder qualifications is that really you can look at any one of them in the list and you can probably slot it in into either the heart, the home, or people, ministry. Um, what kind of a man of God is he with his heart? Um, does he manage his household well? You see? Um, is, he, is he quarrelsome? Does he like to just fight with people? Can he refute error with sound doctrine? very important um, out in ministry. So we want to put those <coughs> qualifications in front of you and say, look, why don't you start praying now that God would make you deacon qualified, um, that God would make you a man qualified to be able to lead people well in a, in a more official capacity. Um, discipline five is really a catch-all kind of um, category. We're just saying whatever biblical issue comes up or biblical question comes up, whatever theological question or issue comes up in the life of the church, in the life of the men of the church, and whatever practical ministry things come up, um, how we do ministry, how we shouldn't do ministry, we want to be disciplined to address those things together. Um, and so, we will, in fact, we'll do that. I, I would throw um, a, a subject like hermeneutics, how to study the Bible, uh, and interpret the Bible, I would throw that into this category because that's very important. It's a, it's a theological, biblical issue that affects the practice of the church. And so we're going to throw that in here towards the end of the year uh, and go through that. And then lastly, um, we're not training here just leaders for any old church, any old place, although these disciplines probably make sense, hopefully in every any church you'd go to. Um, but we're primarily building leaders for Grace Bible Church. And so we need to have you be aware of what the vision, the biblical vision of the church is, and the gospel purposes of the church. And we'll talk about those two things um, as well as we go down the road. Okay? So there's your, your disciplines um, out in front of you. Hopefully you'll get to a point by at some point in the over the course of the year where you'll be able to just kind of run through that and explain to somebody. 
And by the way, when you're meeting now with a guy, and, and the guy says, I need to get together, and, and I need to meet, hopefully you've got an idea. Here's some things that we need to focus on together. What man, you, you address any man in these issues, and it will begin to bring about the self-correction that is needed. Because so often what happens is that we're just not paying attention to our hearts, and our hearts have wandered, and our hearts have begun to love something that it's not supposed to love. And so the very thing you need to come back to is the word of God with the heart. And you begin to address that in a man, and if he's teachable and he's humble, he responds. He wants that. And it's a journey. It's not oftentimes a, an immediate change overnight, but boy, there's, there's a willingness to go. And, and, and it's so much fun to be able to walk together. Or it's a playing leapfrog over a relationship in, a, in the home and need to work on that. And this is like just practical, nitty-gritty. This is how you care for one another in the body. Um, and so hopefully it will be helpful for you. But the idea is at some point, you guys, just this, this needs to be what you talk about in your sleep. Okay? That, and this is what you talk about with other men in the church. Guys that, that you're inviting to the church that are newer, you need to be talking about this. This is what this is the kind of men we need to be. This is the kind of man you need to be, um, etc. So, by the way, I don't know if you guys saw or, or caught the news last week when we, when we were talking about the heart, and I used that illustration of that little baby in India whose heart was born on the outside of it. The little baby died last week. Um, just thought I'd let you know that. It's very sad. I thought he was going to be fine and. Um, just couldn't kick the infection that he got, and uh, very sad. But all right, let's let me direct your attention to the quote, the little card that if you have bifocals, you're going to need because it's so small. All right, this is one of my favorite quotes um, on the Bible, on understanding the Bible, making it clear what the Bible isn't. And it's by um, Paul Tripp in his book called Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. How many of you have read that book or have that book? Okay. Every single one of you need to buy that book. And every single one of you need to read that book. Because that is a very practical book on just how we in the body of Christ are instruments in the Redeemer's hands to bring about change in one another. Biblical change. Salvation. Sanctification change. And um, Tripp is an excellent writer and author on that kind of stuff. And that is a, a, a great book to read. The elders just finished reading it together this last um, earlier this year. It's must reading. And, and this is what he says in it. This is how scripture differs from an encyclopedia. When I use an encyclopedia, I do not need to read other articles to understand the one I'm reading at the moment. Right? One article has no connection to another. And there are no overarching themes. In the Bible, however, every passage is dependent on the whole. And the whole Bible is held together by interdependent themes that run through every passage like rebar, the steel rods that reinforce concrete. These themes give me a sense of identity, purpose, and direction that will fundamentally alter the way I think, desire, speak, and act. The sad fact is that many of us are simply not biblical in the way we use the Bible. Being biblical does not mean merely quoting words from within its pages. 
like you do when you do research and you go to an encyclopedia and you just quote what's in the encyclopedia or in the other research book you're in. That's not what it means to just be biblical. Being truly biblical means that my counsel reflects what the entire Bible is about. The Bible is a narrative. It's a story of redemption. And its chief character is Jesus Christ. He is the main theme of the narrative, and he is revealed in every passage in the book. Lasting change begins when our identity, our purpose, and sense of direction are defined by God's story. Um, So it is so important, guys, that you understand that you don't want to come to this book like you're coming to get an answer that you would go get if you were going to an encyclopedia, and then you just come back and you spit out the words you got. Um, We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment here. But that's very important to understand. I hope that you'll come back to that and and refresh your heart with that so that you rightly understand um, God's word and the way that it should be used and the way it shouldn't be used. Well, with that in mind, before we jump into our study together, let's let's pray and let's ask God to meet with us and um, that we'd be an encouragement to each other this morning. Let's pray. Father, again, we, we just thank you for this great opportunity that's before us to be together and uh, to meet with you with our Bibles open in front of us. Right now in, in this season of redemptive history, this is... Um, the best it gets and it is a good thing that we get to meet with you with your Bible open thank you that we have the Bible thank you that each of us can probably go home and, and, and we have more than one Bible we have several thank you that we can um, turn to it at any moment we have all kinds of freedom with it in this life we live here in this country and uh, we thank you for the freedom we have this morning just to be able to be together and open it and read and jump into it and have it jump all over us. Our desire is not that we would master it, but that it would master us, and in particular that you would master us, that you would use your word to control our lives and to change them and to to change the affections of our hearts so that we love sin less, so that we love you more. So please come and meet with us and do that in us. Only you can do that. We can't do that to our own hearts. All we can do is be disciplined to bring our hearts before you. And so that's our desire this morning. We also desire to make an impact on one another. So as we meet in small groups later, God, would you please um, help us to care for one another. Give us um, wisdom and, and compassion for one another over this year as we build into one another's lives, as we Step into each other's lives, Lord. Help us to be humble and to open the door of invitation to one another to step into our lives with your word. And so, God, we are eager to have you feed us so that we might know you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Hey, take out your, uh, um, you can undo your paper clip there on what stuff you've got. Take your um, sheet there that says Discipline 1, the heart, a biblical introduction to the heart. And you can put part two on that because I don't want you to confuse this with part one, which was last time we were together. Okay? This is the biblical survey, a biblical introduction to the heart. We're going to look at, um, when we finally get into God's word here in a few minutes, we're going to basically look at, at two kind of unrelated 
um, categories, I, I want you to see, um, I think it's on the back of your sheet, the description of the heart at the beginning of the Bible storyline. I just want you to see if from the earliest pages in the Bible, what does the Bible say about the heart? Because that'll set the trajectory for really the rest of the Bible. And so we'll look at the flood and what God said about the heart before and after the flood. And then we'll just change gears completely and talk about pride. Uh, number two, and talk about the danger that pride exposes your heart to. Uh, but to begin with, I, I have an illustration that I want to give you because I think this is helpful so that we continue to try to understand the Word of God rightly and what it is and what it is not. Okay? Um, let me give you this illustration. I want you to imagine it's 112 outside and that you are in the desert and you are hiking and your water is all gone and you went off the trail and you're lost. And it is hot and you're becoming delirious and you've lost all sense of direction. You're scared to step in either direction because you don't know if it's only going to lead you further away from where you should be. Now, how important at that point would it be to be rescued? Duh. I mean, that is your one focus. That is your one goal is being rescued. Because for you, it is a matter of life and death. Now, let me inject something that might seem silly into it. Suppose the whole time you have a satellite phone. So you're in that condition, no water. You really need somebody else. But you've got a satellite phone. Now, how important then does that satellite phone become to you in the desert in that setting? I mean, it's huge. It's everything, right? Because it is the one means to the one end that you must have, right? It, that satellite phone, puts you into contact with your rescuers. Now, the fact that that satellite phone is a means and not an end. The fact that it's a means doesn't lead you to devalue it, right? It actually, because of the kind of means it is, leads you to what? You protect it at all costs. You value it. You honor it. It, it leads you to make sure you don't neglect it. That you don't set it down and forget it. That you don't abuse it. That you don't get careless with it. It leads you to honor the phone because it is the one means to your one end. It puts you into contact with your rescuer. Discipline one in Bill is all about your heart that's prone to wander off, getting near its rescuer knowing its rescuer. Obviously being rescued the first time and being saved, but the rescuer puts you in a relationship with himself and he pleads with you to know him as your rescuer who continues to rescue you and who will ultimately and finally rescue you. So discipline one is all about your heart getting near its rescuer, its deliverer, its savior. Because for you and me, that, that's a matter of life and death, but even more so, it's a matter of heaven and hell. That's a more serious situation with a better rescuer than anything in the desert that might happen. 
knowing the rescuer, growing closer to the rescuer. That's our one focus. It's our one goal. It is the one end of life, to know God, right? Everything flows from that. And discipline one, then, is also helping you understand the precious word of God rightly, that it is not the end in your life. It is the one means given to you by God to get the one end. And just like knowing a satellite phone is the one means in the desert to get you to your rescuer, knowing that it doesn't lead you to cheapen the satellite phone, to devalue it, to neglect it, to abuse it, Neither does knowing that the Bible is your one means, and not the end, lead you to devalue it, to cheapen it, to abuse it, to neglect it. In fact, when you rightly understand it as the means that it is, it leads you to cherish it, to protect it, to honor it, to love it. Now imagine this. To interact with the Word of God in such a way that you don't interact with the God of the Word would be like being in the desert playing a game on a satellite phone but not using it to call your rescuer. I don't know if satellite phones have games on them. This one does. It's a new model. It should. That's right. <laughs> that's ridiculous. That you would fixate on the phone but never use it to talk to your rescuers. That's foolish. It's stupid. But what? But we, we fall into it. Guys, I was in this trap with the Word of God in my life. I had to shepherd my heart out of this kind of thinking about the Word. That it's okay for me to come here, get right answers, interact with the Bible, but not meet with God. Do you understand? The kind of leader in a church who, at whatever level of, of, of ministry leadership, small group leader, Sunday school teaching, adult education, pastor, elder, it doesn't matter. The leader who interacts with God's word primarily, mostly, continually that way, where interact with words, but not really, doesn't seem to be all that concerned to meet with God, versus the one who, the word of God is a means that we would know him, people. He would love him. The difference between those two kinds of leaders and what kind of ministry comes out from those kinds of leaders is night and day. It is huge. It's huge. And you must be that kind of man. You must be for your household. You must be for your own heart's sake. You must be for this church's sake. You must be that kind of man for the gospel's sake. Okay? You guys, you need to be passionate about this. You need to be passionate about God and the Word of God because He gave it to you so that you might know Him, so that you might love Him. I was among a bunch of guys in my early days as a Christian where the thing that we went around and talked about all the time was the Word. You know, it's the Word. The Word. Churches today aren't about the Word, you know. The Word. People are neglecting the Word. I can't believe that Churches aren't preaching the word, right? The word. And it began to me to sound like when finally this, when somebody confronted me about this, 
It was like, oh my goodness, I've been talking about the word as if it is the end. Now, I know why I was talking about the word that way. It's because I saw everywhere that it was being neglected. In the church, it was being neglected. It was slowly but steadily and surely being pushed off to the side, to the sidelines. And that was driving me crazy. And it was like, the word! The word of God! The word! The word! And we were talking about the word. But you know what? I don't remember really being all that concerned about learning out the God of the word. You see, when we emphasize the word, the word, the word, we think that we're honoring it. And that's, that's our, I think that's, for many of us, our genuine desires. We want to honor the word. But listen, you can't improve on the honor that God set for his word. And the honor that he determined for its word is when you see it rightly as the glorious means to the end that it is. We can't improve on that, guys. We can't improve on it. So we need to rightly understand that this is our satellite phone that makes a difference between heaven and hell. Okay? We need to understand that. It's a means to the end. Come on in. We got a chair right there. Yeah. Sneak on in here. Yeah, there's one over there. Thanks, Alex. Maybe a pen or something, too. All right, so that, that's an illustration that I, I find, for me, to be helpful. Listen, we shouldn't be happy if we're talking about truth. We're talking about the Word, but we're not talking about knowing God and loving God. You should feel like, oh, that conversation didn't go as far as it could have and should have. Okay? So let's talk about truth. And let's talk about the Word. Because we love God. And we must have more of Him. We must know Him. Okay? Now, with that in mind, I want you to, in your notebook, I want, I want to direct your attention to the sheet that is called a D1 the heart. It's right in your first category. So if you need to look on with somebody else to do that. It says the 856 occurrences of heart in the New American Standard. Okay. You see that in your notebook, it, and what it does is it lists the books by the Bi- uh, of the Bible, and it has a number after it. And what that means is, um, it's this one here. So keep, don't go to the one that is. There you go. And I think it's the last one in in, in your discipline one section. Yeah. Okay. It's more bold face type, and it just has the books of the Bible listed with a number behind it. That is the usage, the occurrence of the word heart in the New American Standard. Okay? Now, and then that tells you how many times the word heart occurs. Um, now, that doesn't mean that the word heart is not used or referenced, um, or the idea of the heart is... You can only talk about the heart when you use the word heart. Um, things get out the heart whether or not you say heart. Okay? So this is not the exclusive view. But here's what I want to do. I want to ask you, what is your favorite New Testament book that you just love to read? What's what's a favorite New Testament book? Come on, I'll up. What? Romans. Okay, Romans. Look down there. Romans, 15 times the word heart is used. Good. Now, what did you, Mike, what did you say? First Timothy. First Timothy. Excellent. Use the heart one time, so now we're up to 21. Let's just do it for a five of these. Uh, another book in the New Testament you just love to read? John's Gospel. John, the Gospel of John. I heard, um, what does it say there? Six times four. We're up to 27. Time. Okay, what? Philippians. 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 How, what does that say? Uh, oh, 
Sorry, didn't make the list. One more. Uh, Axe. 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 Mentioned the heart 20 times. Good job. You just looked at it because of the <laughs> <laughs> 41 times. Okay. Now, the way that I have found most Christians to be and most men to be is there's about five favorite books that the guy has. And most of them are in the New Testament, if not all of them. And his life is spent reading those same five books over and over and over. And I'm surprised that you said James, because usually James is one of them. Because James gives you a kick in the pants with doing, a lot of doing. And we need that as believers, for certain. Okay, so let's say you read those five books over a course of a year. You've exposed your heart, uh, what was the number, 41 times? Roughly. 41 times to what God says about the heart. Now, I want you to look at um, the book of Exodus. When was the last time you read the book of Exodus? Okay, don't say it out loud. A couple weeks ago. 30, thanks, Alvin. <laughs> <laughs> this last week. <laughs> Exodus mentions the heart 33 times. God wants to say something to you about what he thinks about the heart 33 times in Exodus. Look at Deuteronomy. <coughs> 45 times. One book. First Kings. When was the last time you read First Kings? Mentions the heart 30 times. How about Second Chronicles? 31 times. Now, most likely the, the books in the Old Testament that you read are Psalms. Um, you read the Psalms and you read Proverbs. Psalms uh, indicate 126 times that's used. Obviously, you can tell. Now, now, why is that? Think on this. Let's just take David, the, one of the, the primary author. A setting of worship, of devotion to God, he can't help but talk about the heart. Because that's what it's all about, right? Proverbs 69 times. What about Jeremiah? 48 times the heart is used. Guys, this is your exhortation to not neglect the Old Testament because you are hindering yourself from being exposed <coughs> to what God wants to say about your heart. The human heart hasn't changed since Genesis 6. Well, Genesis 3. We'll see what it says in Genesis 6 about the heart. It's the same. You need to see what God's been thinking about the heart. And you need to get in some of these books like that. Okay? This is not an exhortation to read those five New Testament books less. This is an exhortation to read all of the Bible more. Okay? And part of your homework that you're going to have is that you need to buy, you know, uh, October 1, have picked a Bible reading plan that's in the back of your notebook, or, or a different one, doesn't matter, but it just needs to be a Bible reading plan that takes you through the whole Bible in a year, and you need to get started by October 1. Okay? So that you can expose yourself to what God says about the heart. All right, now let's review a little bit from last week. Um, back on your worksheet, review from last week. A biblical survey of the heart. Somebody tell us, uh, what is the heart? How would you summarize what the heart is? If somebody came to you and said, I'll just talk about the heart, what do you mean when you say the heart? Are you just talking about my emotions? Is that what you mean? What would you say? The focal point of your inner being. Okay. Focal point of your inner being. What else? I heard somebody start to say something over here. Focal point is multi-part, uh, important part of the human 
Okay, most important part of the, not just, and by body we don't just mean physiologically, right? But we mean our, the human. What else? The seat of conscience. The seat of your conscience, good. For all thought and emotion, desires, deeds are born and nourished before coming out. It's like the launching point of, uh, mm-hmm. or the birth yeah. from uh, the goal. Right, it's Cape Canaveral, right? I mean, it's that launching <laughs> point where everything comes out, Jesus said, Right. What else? Anything else you want to add? Central command. Yeah, it's 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 that place where uh, all of the the commands go out from uh, to all of the rest of, of life, and everything flows from there. Proverbs, what is it? Five. Yeah, it's it. watch over it. Watch it's, over it. It's the focal point of God's evaluation. Of yeah, that's very important too. When God comes to us, mm-hmm. he he's concerned about the heart. What's there? All right, good. And then what do we talk about the condition of the heart being? What, what, did, what are some of the things that we said about that? If you were going to share with somebody what the problem of the heart is, what would you say based on what we looked at last time? Yeah. Wicked, deceiving, self-serving. That's right. Wicked, deceitful, self-serving. What else? We can't claim it. Yeah, we can't. Right. And, and boy, there's a lot of talk of... of among the people we live with in this world that just follow your heart, right? And even in the church. And even in the church, yeah, absolutely. And the heart failed, fails us, right? Um, is the heart aware of this? Is the heart alert to how devastated its condition is? No. Self-deceiving. Yeah, I mean, it is completely deceived. And if you were to go out into the world and make a list of all the deceitful things you found at the end of 80 years of looking, what would be at the top of your list? <coughs> your own heart. My heart. Right? <coughs> and yet, what is the highest calling of the heart? Love God first. To love God with all of it, not with part of it. All of it. Okay, so wait a minute. You've got this massive, eternal gulf between what my heart really is and what it's called to, to love God. Um, Does God see that? The answer is yes, and he's going to hold us accountable for it. He's going to repay. So what is the greatest need then of the human heart? And it comes in, in... Two exhortations, or one exhortation and one relief, one statement of relief. The exhortation to you is what? Change your heart. You are culpable for this. You are responsible for your heart being this way, and there's exhortations all throughout the Old Testament of Israel, you need to change your heart. And then what does that do? What did the Old Covenant do? Look, Deuteronomy is Moses reteaching the law. And he mentions the heart 45 times. And he says, so the Mosaic Covenant made Israel very aware of that heart condition and that they were responsible. And yet, did the Mosaic Covenant provide a means for them to do it? To change their hearts. So at the same time, hang on a second, Mike. At the same time, then God says, I'll do it. And this is why you see David in Psalm 51, somebody who was under the heart, and we'll talk about this more in a minute when we get into our study for today, somebody who was under the Mosaic Covenant, 
he felt the total frustration of his heart being in that kind of a condition and cried out, God created me a clean heart. Now when did God ultimately bring his promise that a new heart would be made? In the new covenant. But in the old covenant, there was still a need for the heart to be changed. Right? Mike, question, Um, comment. How do you go about teaching that to your kids? We try to explain to our boys, um, like just go through the gospel with them and, and explain to them that their hearts are sick of sin and the reason why they're acting like normally we do this for admonishing them after we um, discipline them. Yeah. Trying to explain to them that they need to turn to Christ and ask for mm-hmm. like, that cleansing. So, uh, like, trying to make them understand that they're responsible to repent, but that God also has to. Well, I think you it's a great question by the way. You 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 exhort them um, like you would um, anybody else. And that is one of the things that we're trying to focus on um, obviously here at our church is that I think you want to start with the gospel. And I think you want to start with the promises of God in the gospel. And you want to proclaim what his promises are to them. Uh, and, and you can, if you want to talk about it in regards to the heart with them, you can. Say, you know, the, uh, the heart, the selfish heart, the heart that loves itself more than God. Um, God put that heart on his son at the cross and punished it completely. And so you're just laying out those kinds of promises of what God did. And then you just say to your little one, this is why... You are where you are. This is why you think the way you think. This is why you do what you do. This is, you know, and I do with my kids. Um, and you know what? Your daddy's not any different. This is why I do what I do. This is why you hear me sometimes. I, there's not kind words that come out of my mouth towards your mommy. And this is why sometimes with you I'm impatient. My heart is this way. And, but Jesus. And the exhortation to us, God says, is come to him. And I plead with you. You know, and this all depends on the age of your child. When they're little itty bitty, you're 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 just trying to help them, and you're just shaping them, and you're you're fighting for ground to get so that when they are five and six and seven and older, that you can have big ground to stand on and run all over the place with the gospel with that. So you're just shaping little things, making them aware of, of the heart, making them aware that Jesus died on the cross. But the simplest thing we've said to our kids, and this is not right, I'm, I'm not telling you this is the way you got to do it. But we've said to our kids over and over, Jesus died on the cross to take away my sin and to give me a new heart. He died on the cross to take away sin and to give a new heart. To give a new heart. To give a new heart. And, son, you need that new heart. How old are you? Um, three, four, almost three, almost two. You almost need to use more pictures. Yeah. Good. Like your heart is filled. Mm. Very good. Some of you older, uh, the, uh, other parents, what, what do you do with your kids? What did, what did you do with your kids and everything? What would you say to a, a guy like him, a three-year-old and two-year-old? Well, actually, happiness. Um, one of the things we focus on, you know, similar, you know, Jesus died to take away and when we are, when I am individually admonishing and correcting and disciplining one of them, um, we go over you know what sin 
<coughs> to be in the glory of him. And so pointing back to him that heart, the sins that he's doing back to him that heart. And so that he doesn't, so as he laying that foundation, uh, I'm a sinner. So that they then see the need for the Savior. Anybody else? Tom? Uh, not that this is what I did because I've learned a lot. So from my mistakes and maybe I have the opportunity with my grandkids to do it better. But uh, I know from my own heart, and I, I think for all of our hearts, it's important to continually remind ourselves of God's faithfulness. And a wonderful place to go would be a Psalm 103 or a Psalm 145 that is just a line by line of, of what we know about God. Because I, I know when I sin, and I believe when all of us sin, it's because there's been a disconnect to who God is. We, we sin because I have forgotten that God is a faithful God, that God is full of mercy, that, that God is a just God. Uh, even God's a forgiving God. But I, I think with children, too, it, it's, it's both. It's the heart and it's also the character of God because... We're prone to forget God's character. What, what, what the heart needs the most are, is to know the promises and, and the, the grace realities of who God is. That's, that's balm for the, the, for the sinful heart. It is the promises of God that save a sinner. It is not the promises a sinner makes to God that save. And so we have to be careful to not exhort our little ones into behavior modification and you just stop doing that okay, so please you're, I want you you need to understand if you don't stop doing it there's going to be consequences okay but you don't want them to hear only don't do that and only do this you need to undergird that a lot with who God is and the promises of God in the gospel as you tell them we're not going to do this we're going to do that so that they never in their minds will be led to think by you that it's just a matter of just changing my behavior because it's not that's not the means. That's the result. So speak to them about promises in the gospel. Um, do you lay only behavior in front of our kids as the problem? Then we'll raise Pharisees. Absolutely. And they will. By pointing to the heart, our, our kids know their own inability to change their heart. Um, and by pointing to the heart, we, they, they, they are of necessity pointing to Jesus. Yeah. It's easier when they can change their hearts. Right? So... And what has God provided for our hearts in this journey? From trying, as we as we seek to starve out that old heart that just loves itself, and we and and, and as we get a new heart and we need to feed it, what has He given to us? He's oh, given us the Bible, the Word of God. So, with that in mind, let's go to the earliest pages of the Bible, Genesis chapter six, on the back side of your sheet, Genesis six. The verses that lead us up to God's thinking on what he's going to do because of the condition of man. <clears throat> the description of the heart at the beginning of the Bible storyline. Genesis 6. Let's look at verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth 
and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made him. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's a full stop. Verse 7, God is saying, I am going to blot out man. Um, The flood is going to come. And the reason that he's going to blot out man is because of what he says in verses 5 and 6. Man's heart is wicked. The wickedness of man was great on the earth. Well, what do you mean by that, God? Well, let me tell you what I mean. It's this, that every, every intent of the thoughts of his heart, any intention, any planned purpose of the thoughts of his heart, every single one, there's not one missing that doesn't have wickedness all over it, evil all over it. And it's only that way. It's only evil. There's no other options that are possible for the intents and the thoughts of of the heart. All of them are only evil. And it's (coughs) always that way. I mean, you see the every, only, continually. There's an emphasis here that there's no squeaking by any... You can't find a sliver of the heart somewhere that's outside of this. It is all this way, only this way, continually this way. And then man's heart impacts God's heart, where he is grieved in his heart. Now, the flood we know comes, chapter 6 and 7. The flood subsides in chapter 8, and now go to chapter 8, verse 20. I read this to my kids the other day, and... um, the part about the bird, you know, Mo, Moses lets the birds go out, a raven and then a dove, and uh, he opened the, the window up on top and let it out. And, and one of my kids said, why didn't, he, why didn't he just look out and see, you know, that the water was gone? And uh, I said, well, you know, this isn't a cruise liner that's got, you know, windows out the side of it. You know, it could have been a rock in such a way that the only thing he could see was blue sky or clouds above him. And imagine how absolutely terrifying it would have been. You've never seen rain and you are in this big thing and you hear screams galore outside, people pounding to get in and then for 40 days just violently being rocked about the earth, the the world and, and bumping into stuff and animals and everything. I mean, I think... I would have probably been huddled up in a corner somewhere. Uh, I would have been, I would have like let the dove out, shut the door. <laughs> I would have. You know? That would be terrifying. So now they finally come out, and they know that there's obviously uh, it's safe to come out. Verse 20, Noah built an altar then to the Lord. Really wise. Let's, I, let's worship this God. And he took every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Interestingly, this is pre-Mosaic law, and God had given some type of regulation of what was clean and not. So there was regulation given to Noah. And the Lord smelled, and he offered those as burnt offerings on the altar. So God gave regulation on a burnt offering very early on. 
the Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on the account of man, for, here's his explanation, the intent of man's heart is, present tense, evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. And the point here is, did the flood, did the judgment fix the problem? No, it's still this way. Did his deliverance of Noah fix the problem? No. The problem is still here. And so this should be lead the, 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 leave the reader of Deuter- uh, Genesis 8 here to be hoping for something better to come. Mike? Um, I don't know if this is too in-depth for questions, but um, with Adam, Romans 5, how it talks about death reigns until Moses, even though we didn't commit the, the same kind of sin with Adam, how does that kind of play into man's heart and depravity? Yeah. How does God look at us through that lens, I guess? Well, you could also... Based off what he said in, in um, even in Romans two and three, um, that he's sinning against the law that's in his own heart, and so he, you know, he's culpable, he's guilty, and death is reigning in his heart um, in, from Adam until the time when more regulation became clear and uh, spun it out and made it clear. So it's a good question. So there you have it. There's, there's, there's how the, this story in this book starts. And this is what it says about the human heart. And the whole rest of the Bible is taken to addressing this core issue in the human heart. Now let's change gears and talk about pride. Um, and let's go to Deuteronomy 17. Okay? Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 to 20. This is... Moses giving instruction to Israel concerning a king someday. Scott, yeah. I just wanted to ask you real quick about that verse. I'm having a little trouble understanding it. When God is saying, is it Moses' worship of him that is it smells the room that says, man is evil, but I won't curse again? What was no. Uh, Noah. Uh, Noah. I mean, no. Yeah. No, he's, he's during that, that, that moment of worship, He's not saying, oh, no, your, your worship of me here is, it's only marked by evil intent again. He's, he's stating again what is still true of the, of the human race. There's only um, what, eight of them now, right? But the <coughs> what he's saying is, is, as you worship me and come off, I'm going to still tell you what, I'm going to tell you again what, what is still the problem. It's just that man's heart is still ruined. And evil continually. And, and it's my commitment to you that I'm not going to destroy the earth again because of that. Um, so he's just reiterating what was true before the flood, saying that's true after the flood. That's the only kind of human there is, is what he's saying. He's not making a statement necessarily that the way he offered the burnt offering was wrong and marked by evil necessarily. He's just saying a general statement about human race at that point. Okay? Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. (coughs) When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen, you shall set as king over yourselves. 
You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away. We can talk about that another time. Nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Now watch this. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself. Who's going to write it? He is. A copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. That copy shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes for a purpose so that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. Let's focus on that first so that. So that his heart may not be lifted up. That's arrogance. That's pride. I'm better than all the rest of you. He is to write a copy of this himself. It is to be in his presence. He is to read it all the days of his life so that he'll learn to fear the Lord as God and be obedient to it so that he doesn't exempt himself from everybody else's standard that they have to live by. He lives by the same standard. The king of Israel someday is going to be leveled completely to the same level ground as everybody else. And what did the leveling? God's law, his word. His revelation of himself. The great leveler for all of us, guys, is the word of God. The word will be what will prevent him from lifting up his heart high above others. Leaders have a tendency to exempt themselves from the standard that all men live by. That there's some kind of an exception for them. And what a leader especially needs is to be continually exposed to the word at the heart level. So the leader sees himself as no different than the, the guy who's not the king. So let's go to look at a king. Psalm 101, <clears throat> verse 4 and 5. Psalm 101. Here's a king, her best king she ever had, the one who is said to have, um, who is after God's own heart. Um, what does he think about leading these people? What is he, how does he view his charge? Let's just start at verse 1. I will sing of loving kindness and justice to you, O Lord. I will sing praises. I will give heed to the blameless way. When will you come to me? I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. He's not playing leapfrog over his house, is he? And yet he did. I will send, uh, set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. I, it shall not fasten its grip on me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will know no evil. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor... Him I will destroy. No one who has a haughty look and an arrogant heart will I endure. And in these days you need to bring clarification to a haughty look. 
um, and spell it for people so you know what I'm talking about. Listen, David, as king over this people, who were to be very concerned about the condition of the heart, right? This king who was to help oversee how they would, using Mosaic law, address the issue of the heart. This king is resolute about a perverse heart not finding a lodging place in his own life. Verse 4. A perverse heart has to depart from me. It can't find a place to live, to settle down, to pitch its tent. He's resolute about that. And then verse 5. As king, who is helping to oversee the Abrahamic covenant promises, who's helping to oversee the Mosaic covenant blessings and curses, the one who's helping oversee the advancement of everything that God has promised to Israel, he knows what will hinder Israel. What's going to hinder Israel? Arrogance at the heart level. As king, I won't stand for it. What he's all about as king has no room for an arrogant heart. Go to Proverbs 16. See what his son, the next king, said about the heart. Proverbs 16.5 Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. Here's a king revealing to his son, who will be the next king, what God thinks about arrogance of heart. Every single one with a proud heart is actually an abomination to the Lord. You could not state it more strongly. You couldn't state God's disapproval and his reaction to arrogance in the heart more strongly. And what is being said here is God's response and God's punishment, it's it's not iffy what he's going to do about it. It's not questionable. It's not uncertain what God's going to do about it. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. Go to Proverbs 18, verse 12. Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, arrogant, proud, puffed up. But humility is before honor. So arrogance before destruction, humility before honor. So if you, the idea then here is, is if you came upon a man's destruction, you saw a train wreckage of a life in front of you, in another man. The idea here is if you were able to trace some steps back before that happened, what would you find? You'd find arrogance at the heart level. That's what was before this train wreck. The same is true that if you came upon a man who was an honorable man, if you took some steps before that, if you could trace before that to see what was there in his life before, what would you find? Humility. Now, you need to understand how Proverbs work. This is not saying that it is always true in every situation, all the time, that the one whose life is destroyed is the guy who is arrogant. Because the arrogant, sometimes their life does not come to a train wreck, right? And just because you're honored doesn't mean that there's humility. So how does it work? It's like this. If I say to my one of my kids, 
The child who doesn't look both ways gets hit by a car before he crosses the street. But the child who does look both ways before he crosses the street lives. That's a statement that's true. There's nothing false about it. And I'm not trying to make a statement that excludes um, a, a situation where a kid did look both ways and went out and got hit. Right? That happens sometimes, but it's still a general statement that's true. And that is what is being said in Proverbs here. So, guys, if you find arrogance lodging in your heart anywhere, if it is left unchecked, you can predict the steps out in front that are possible for you, that are coming. Same way, if there's humility in your heart, if you trace your steps out before you, you know what's coming. It may not come in the form of the the way the world honors the humble. It may, may be heaven. It may be exaltation in Jesus Christ, ultimately. No greater honor than that. Okay? How about Hosea 13? Two more passages, and then we'll take a break and go to small group time. Hosea. Remember, you got to find Daniel. And then you go to Hosea. Chapter 13, verses 4 to 6. A great statement on God and the way that he saw himself with Israel, especially back at the Exodus and the deliverance and the wilderness wandering. Watch this. Hosea 13, verses 4 to 6. Yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and you were not to know any God except me, for there is no Savior besides me. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. As they had their passage, they became satisfied. I'm sorry, their pasture. They became satisfied. And being satisfied, their heart became proud. Therefore, they forgot me. You see how dangerous a a prideful heart is. Um, Wow, it, it, it leads to forgetfulness, divine forgetfulness. You'll forget God. So the danger that is inherent in your satisfaction, in being comfortable, having God's provision, being blessed, having satisfaction, ah, watch out for your heart at that moment. That's the whole point, right? Because what? That's when the heart becomes proud, and that's when the heart forgets God. Let's go to the New Testament. James chapter 3. Verse 13. James has been dealing with um, those in the body in chapter 2 who like to draw party lines and and um, prefer one another, especially the rich will prefer the rich and those who are poor, well, they're kind of second-class citizens. Encouraging people to not be so quick to become teachers, to recognize the tongue is deadly. And he says in verse 13, Now who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, where? In your heart, watch out, 
do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. You see, this wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but it's earthly, it's natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. Now, if you have bitter jealousy in your heart, if you have selfish ambition in your heart, you're, it's, just, it's just a matter of time before arrogance comes about. Now, here's what's being said. This is, and this is what's really interesting, guys. And you can help one another with this. You can shepherd your own heart to understand this, and you can help one another. This is a great passage that shows you how one sin easily leads to another kind of sin. And, and, and that's, a, that's a bad thing, right? You look at that and you go, oh, that's bad. But on the, on, the, on the side where you're fighting against sin, here's the good news. If you can get the right sin and go after the right sin, you might actually be what? Knocking down a couple of others. That's the good news here. One sin is often tied to another. A lazy man, oh my goodness, a lazy man is opening himself up for all kinds of other sins to come into his life. And oftentimes it's those other secondary sins that follow that that the guy is all convicted about. Yeah, I'm just convicted about this. I'm convicted and convicted. Well, have you noticed any patterns in your life of when you do that? Yeah, it's one of my couch potatoes. <laughs> well, I got an idea. Let's go back and let's take care of the couch potato thing. And let's get diligent. Let's be intentional about your heart and your life and, and what you're doing. And watch what happens. So if bitter jealousy and selfish ambition finds a way into your heart, you then are positioned to become arrogant and to become a liar about your condition. I think what's being said here in the greater context of what's going on is that those who've been kind of full of a party spirit, who've been kind of jealous of the group that you're in, I'm in this group and you're not in this group, and there's selfish ambition, people pushing their way to be to the top. Those who are full of a party spirit like that or are full of selfish ambition, they, um, they ought to be humble at least and acknowledge that there's nothing wise about that. In fact, the only kind of wisdom that is evident in that is earthly, demonic, natural wisdom. That's what his exhortation is. This wisdom is not that which comes from above. Don't be arrogant about what you are. Don't lie against the truth of what you are. Be wise with a heavenly wisdom. Verse 17, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. You see, those are all horizontal things toward one another. All right, so there's some teaching from the Word of God on the heart and concern, uh, concerning pride. Pride, guys, will, will expose your heart to nothing good. It will lead to nothing good. And so one of the ways that you can shepherd your heart is to ask God, say, God, show me show me where, where pride exists. Show me the arenas of life where I tend to be more arrogant than I seem to display pride in other places. Give me eyes to see that. And, and God, give me a good brother in my life whom I can ask and say, will you show me? Help me, to, help me to have somebody in my life who will come to me, who will be concerned for my heart in the way that I know I should be concerned for my heart. Somebody who will see what I can't see. And help each other. The way that you would want pride pointed out to you, somebody being gracious and kind, and patient, 
be that for them. Be that for somebody. Okay? All right. Now let's talk a little bit about, um, as we, let's talk about your homework for just a minute. And then we're going to, by 8 o'clock, be in small group time, okay? Your, your, the homework that I'm, I'm most, uh, not most, I, I'm concerned about, there's two things you got to have done that you need to do. One is the, the sheet that was for today, this one, on, um, since due Saturday, September 26th, the personal evaluation of your heart's interaction with the Word. That needs to be, we're going to talk about that in small group today. Um, but I also want to remind you, you need to choose a Bible reading plan. Be on that by October 1. If you're already picked one and you're already on it, great. You've done the, you've done the assignment. But by October 1, if you have it, you need to be on one. And um, we have a chronological one that's in the back of your notebook, and it's set to start October 1, so that will help you. If you pick another one that's, you know, just has every day of the year picked out what you read, just, you know, pick today's date, you know, what is today, the 26th, and just start reading what's there. Don't worry about, oh, I'm 14 verses into Deuteronomy, or 14 chapters into Deuteronomy. So just, just start reading, okay? Just start reading right there, and September 25th next year, you have made it all the way through. That's great. Don't worry about that, okay? Um, now, let me go through, for next time, let me remind you, um, or give you some indication on on this one. This is your homework for next time. The next time we meet together is October 17th. And this is where I want to encourage you to um, look at your schedule and build. Don't get in your mind it's every other Saturday. Because I don't think October 17th is two weeks from today, is it? Three. So you'll be here on October um, 11th or 10th and nobody will be here. Okay? So you want to be here October 17th. But this is your assignment for them. Um, these are just questions that help you as you've been, hopefully by that time, reading through your Bible. What time of day are you reading? And why did you pick that time? Why didn't I just? That's just kind of what I, I've been doing. That's what. Well, why? In what ways is that time that you're reading helpful for you? Is there anything about that time that's not helpful or a challenge to you? Do you need to make an evaluation? Oh, you, you know what? I shouldn't be reading at this time because it's just not the best time. I should read at a different time, a better time. Um, or no, I'm sure this is the right time. I gave some thought to it, and here's why. I know it is. This, you, do you understand what I'm getting at? You need to be well thought out. Is this the right and best time for me to be reading in your life? Okay? Yeah. yeah. Question about that. Um, yeah. What, what are some of the reasons for picking a time yeah, that, I mean, really, it's just you should read your Bible when you are at your best. Okay, we should read our Bibles all of the time, even when we are at our worst. But you want to read your Bible, especially when you're at your best. And you know, everybody's a little different. Um, I know some guys um, read their Bible at you know 11 o'clock at night and go to bed. Um, and if that's when you're at your best, read your Bible then. But I still think even if you sleep on it, you got to get up and live on it. And you got to have a way in the morning when you get up and drag your carcass out of bed when you're not at your best to remember and refresh your mind what you read at 11 o'clock at night before you went to bed. Okay? Scott, yeah. I, I think I can think of a season of my life to that question. And I can remember I was in our bedroom and I was reading and I could hear my wife in the other part of the house having an issue with one of our daughters. 
And I can remember sitting there thinking, when isn't it a great time to be reading the Bible? I need to go take care of it. And so it, I think, too, to answer your question, it's uh, what works best for what's going on in your house. Yeah, there, there's, look, you, you want to, I'm, I'm a big, big proponent for reading it in the morning before you go. Because, I mean, I, again, um, and, and I, I don't have chapter and verse, okay? So this is my opinion. But you've got to live before people and before your heart gets near to anybody else. Shouldn't it get near to God? I mean, I think that's a pretty good situation. So you've got to at least do something in the morning as you're on your way to people or the day or whatever. I think you got to do something. <clears throat> but if you read at night, great. Read at night. Soak as much as you can. But there's got to be a way that you review, refresh, and go over that kind of thing. Look for time throughout the day. Um, add, you, but give thought. The point is, be thoughtful. Okay? I, I, I don't just. It's, it's, it's a time to reevaluate when you read. That's the point. Mike. So like when we share us as family in private. Yeah. Um, when we do family reading, I'm trying to teach our boys to, to, to listen. Uh-huh. Um, I guess that, that's going to be beneficial for them in the world, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, we have to sit through it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and um, you, everybody can do McShane's has is, is got lots of flexibility to it. Um, you know, I, I, the way I did McShane's when I was doing it a couple years ago is I read all four chapters at the same time, all four different readings at the same time in the morning before the day. But some guys do it and, and, and actually use it the way you're supposed to with your family and stuff like that too. That's good. I do something different outside of that with my kids and, and stuff in the morning. But... Um, yeah, I mean, pick and do whatever you can. The point is, you need a time when you're reading God's Word when you can get your heart near to God in the Word, okay? And and find the best time. Pray before you read. Feel free to interrupt. The second bullet point there in your homework is give some thought about prayer as you read. What role should prayer have in your reading? Uh, third bullet point, as, you're, as you read, are you aware of any tendencies to play leapfrog over your own heart to think of others? Oh, my goodness. You can be reading a passage and you'd be like, oh my goodness, does my wife need to read this one? In fact, I'm going to write this on a little index card, <laughs> tape it on the mirror, and at the bottom, love you. <laughs> Watch. It, well. it doesn't go well at all. <laughs> don't do that. I don't do that. Yeah. Watch for that as you read. Um, how are you doing at keeping your Bible reading a devotional activity just between you and God? Okay, um, You need to make sure that you're working hard. It's between you and the Lord as you read. And then um, think about how you can take at least one thing from what you read about God and his word with you to meditate on throughout the day. And I just want you to write a little bit about how this is going for you. So you probably are going to want to wait on some of these before you, know, you get closer to October 17th. Uh, if you're reading now and you've been in a pattern of reading, you can answer any of these now and do it. Okay, but if you if you if you're a guy who's been having a hard time just being consistent in the word, you might want to just go ahead and, and and start reading and then give it a couple weeks and then answer these. Okay, does that make sense? All right.